so if you want to go ahead and turn there, you'll be ahead of the game. We'll get there in just a few minutes. I'm a creature of habit, probably like you. <laughs> give you the passage of scripture and give you all kinds of introduction or other stuff before we get there, but there's reason behind it. Some of you will remember January 13th, 1982, when Air Flight Florida crashed into a bridge over the Potomac River. The water was icy as the plane laid on top of the icy water and the tail stuck up out of the water. Then rescue attempts began uh, with a Park Service helicopter as a camera crew was nearby and they filmed the entire thing for all of us to be able to watch on television. Now everybody flips out their cell phones, but nobody had any cell phone with a camera to be able to do the capability back then, so long ago. What was so unique about this particular tragedy is there were about five survivors that were in the water and they were trying to keep their heads above the icy water as the helicopter would take its um, landing pads and would dip them down at the water or would throw a rope with a rescue ring to those that were there in the water. There was this one gentleman, however, who captured the hearts of our country and of all the people who watched the news story. He was simply referred to as the man in the water, balding probably in his late 40s with an extravagant mustache. So that speaks well of him, doesn't it? <laughs> this guy was described by Donald Usher and by Eugene Windsor. They were the helicopter team of the park police who risked their lives, as I said, every time they took those skids to dip them into the water. So this man in the water was seen with five other survivors, as I told you, at the tail section of the plane. He was described by Windsor and Usher as appearing very much in control and alert. And every time they lowered the lifeline to him, he would pass it on to another survivor. And so they did that multiple times, and each time he did the same thing, passing it on, passing it on. Uh, these guys said, in a mass casualty, you'll find people like him. But I've never seen him with that kind of commitment, said Windsor. When the helicopter came back for him the last time, he had gone under. And the reason for the story and the reason it grabbed such national attention was his selflessness. He wasn't thinking about rescuing him. He was thinking about everybody else beforehand to make sure that they were safe, to make sure that they were all right. Did you know that the only time we have any expression of Jesus describing his personality to us and his emotional makeup is Matthew 11? You know it, so I'll just read it to you and you'll say, oh yeah, I know that. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And then he says, for I am gentle and humble of heart. That's how he describes himself. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. The most Christ-like attitude found is in those words, I am gentle and humble of heart, which could be summed up in a word we don't use very often, which is unselfishness. Now, we're coming up on a season where we talk a lot about unselfishness and about caring about others more than we do our own. And we practice it a little better in the month of December than we do any other time. But most of the time, by nature, we're pretty selfish people. If you'd have told me a selfie was a thing when I was in high school, I would have thought those people are hung up on themselves big time. But times change, don't they? According to Jesus, one of the most Christ-like attitudes that you and I can demonstrate, though, is one of unselfishness selfishness. But we all have our own de definitions to describe what unselfishness is. Maybe we don't need to explain it through words, but just consider the example of Arlen D. Williams Jr. 
the man who gave the ultimate sacrifice in his life as he continued to pass on the lifeline to somebody else in that cold January river there in the Potomac. Books have been written about that situation. A movie was published. There was an article in Time magazine, and I want to read a section of that article to you. For at some moment in the water, he must have realized that he would not live if he continued to hand over the rope and the ring to others. He had to know, no matter how gradual the effect of the cold, in his judgment he had no choice. When the helicopter took off with what was to be the last survivor, he watched everything in the world move away from him, and he deliberately let it happen. Now, why would I want to read that to you? Because that's exactly what Jesus did for us. He handed over the rope. He handed over the lifeline. He gave his life knowing exactly what he was doing and why he was doing it. But in Jesus' judgment, even as he saw the betrayer dip that morsel into the dip and then walk out of the room to betray him, he knew what he must do. And he watched everything in the world fade away from him. That, in a word, is unselfishness. To be like Jesus, to be gentle and humble of heart, let's think about our time, our money, our possessions, our energy. Unselfishness means looking out more for the other person than it does yourself. The teams that I love to watch or cheer for more than any others are the teams that, that play unselfishly. The churches that are the strongest and the best places to be are those that live for one another and not themselves Families that care more about somebody else in the family than they do themselves are rich families and a joy to be around. They don't even have to describe themselves. They become extremely attractive. But ours is a day of self-promotion, defending our own rights, taking care of ourselves first, then everybody else will come later, winning by intimidation and pushing our way to the front no matter how much it costs to get there. We can be so busy defending the reason we do what we do is that we wind up manipulating and we set up a grim, sad life for ourselves, but we can't see it till we're finally down the road somewhere and we look back and realize the reason was I only thought about me. Now, it's easy to think that this is a 21st century attitude, but it's not. Let me read some quotes to you. Greece said, be wise, know yourself. Rome said, be strong, discipline yourself. Religion says, be good, conform yourself. Epicureanism says, be sensuous, satisfy yourself. These all sound like themes for commercials on TV. Education says, be resourceful, expand yourself. Psychology says, be confident, assert yourself. Materialism says, be possessive, please yourself. Asceticism says, be lowly, suppress yourself. Humanism says, be capable, believe in yourself. Pride says, be superior, promote yourself. Jesus says, be unselfish, humble yourself. You say, okay, man, it's a Sunday night. You're supposed to go light. I get it, I get it, I get it. Where are you going with this thing? This whole concept of cultivating a selfish attitude, grab you can get in a society like ours. And then I ask you, and Jesus asks you from your, his word to be unselfish, you begin to think, oh, so you want me to lay down, surrender, give up, and let everybody walk all over me, call me whatever they want me to be? How do I exhibit this Christ-likeness without getting run over and become a doormat or become taken advantage of? Philippian letter, chapter 2. Paul wants Lydia, the Roman jailer, the church at Philippi, and us to know these things. 
that we need to exemplify, exemplify the same attitude that Christ had. And how do we do that? Well, it was essential to the church then. It's essential to us now. Look at the first four verses to begin with. If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. So what's the theme on Paul's mind in these first four verses? Somebody else. Them, not me. Unselfishness will lead to like-minded spirit of harmony. You can count on it. When there's disunity in a church, you've got to look for the selfish person. And when you find the selfish persons or persons, you go, there it is. That's the reason for disunity. The New York Yankees, fantastic baseball team, pay top dollar for great athletes. But over the years, they've not been successful all the time because of a few selfish folks who wanted more than anybody else. So if it can happen with a ball team, it can happen with a family, it can happen with a church. Yes? Ah, maybe so. Maybe so, you say. I think you can count on it. Disunity feeds selfishness. So Paul is pleading here, my friends, please set aside your selfish attitude. It will steal away your closeness. It will steal away your joy. He starts off these four verses in Philippians with ifs. In other words, he's saying, if this is true, then do such and such. That these qualities are not a question here, but they're a statement of fact. Kenneth Wiest, who is a fine Greek scholar, says, instead of translating an if, it could also be translated since or in view of the fact, and then the verse. So let me read those verses that way. Since there is encouragement in Christ, be in the same mind. Since there is a consolation of love, maintain that love. Since there's a fellowship of the Spirit, be united in spirit. And since there's affection and compassion, be intent on one purpose. Now wait a minute. Does this mean that we have to agree on everything? We've got to leave there and go, we've got to surrender what we think and what our opinion is just so we go with the crowd and go their direction and, oh, well, if I've got to do it, then let's do that. That's not what this is all about. That's, not, that's, that's uniformity. Jesus is talking about and Paul is talking about humility. There is never a call in Scripture for uniformity. We have to look alike, talk alike, dress alike, sound alike. Uniformity is pressure from the outside to make us be something like everybody else. That's not what this is addressing. Unity comes from deep within where the Holy Spirit convicts us about things where we've been selfish and says, hey, this thing that you're holding on to, you need to let go. Or why don't you surrender a little bit over here? Or why don't you listen a little closer to what she is saying? That kind of deal. And it's a byproduct of the Holy Spirit at work. So there's room for disagreement there's room for different opinions, but you still get along. Is that cool stuff or what? I think it's fantastic. All right, 
at the heart of this, there's this inner desire to want to cooperate with one another, to be on the same team, to strive for the same objective. That's why I love the bunt in baseball, because it's giving yourself up for the sake of the team. That's why I like a hit and run in baseball. When the guy at first base is taken off and you've got to drive that ball in the right field, no matter what. Okay, into the baseball illustrations. It's not even the right season, is it? Paul shares such a spirit of harmony would make his joy complete and make him truly happy. That harmony, that unity makes happiness. Now, you come from a house, a ball team, a workplace where disharmony um, reigns. Was it a joyful place to be? Was that a joyful team to play on? It was not. I remember kids who didn't want to go home just because their home was full of disharmony. And if you play on a team or an organization that's full of disharmony, after a while you say, you know, honey, maybe we need to check the church down the road. Yes? Okay. How is all of this accomplished? Verse 3 and 4 tell us what to do, and verses 1 and 2 tell us how this thing can kind of be accomplished. It's possible to pull off such an unselfish attitude, um, and you can do it most everywhere. Look look with me again at verses 3 and 4. Even though I read them, I want to read them one more time. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. We just came through COVID. People were ticked off about masks. My thought was, if I can keep somebody else feeling better, then I'm going to wear the mask, whether I want to wear the mask or not. So, was it uncomfortable? Absolutely. Was it hard to breathe? No doubt. You got glasses that they fog up? Yes, they did. And you had to find one that kind of fit right. Did it. You couldn't talk, couldn't hear, couldn't all that kind of stuff. After a while, man, it was no problem for me. I just put it in my pocket, put the rascal on and went. Because of this verse, let each of you consider one another as more important than yourself. It's easy for somebody to label you something that you're a compliant person for doing this or you're giving it to some political party because you're doing this. No, it is because you're caring about somebody else. That was my reason. I don't know what your reason was. You didn't want to get it. That helps too, doesn't it? Look at verse 4. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Paul gives us three practical ideas to cultivate this unselfish attitude. First, never let selfishness or conceit be your motive. The key is never. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Wow, what if we just stopped here and lived that one verse this week? Maybe I ought to. (laughs) Maybe I'm pressing too hard. Look at this second thing. Always regard one another as more important than yourself. You know why we struggle with this? Because it ain't a natural thing. It is not natural. You will hardly ever get this advice from others. There are very few examples of such behavior around us. But God's word says this thing can be your habit, and you can do so by being like Jesus. Then there's a third thing. Don't limit your attention to your own personal interests. Include others. It doesn't mean that you never deal with your own needs. It doesn't mean you don't take care of yourself. It doesn't mean you become unhealthy. It's not self-forgetfulness. It's not self-hate that Paul is advocating. I like what Andrew Murray said. The humble person is not the one who thinks meanly of himself. He simply does not think of himself. As Christians... When we pursue the goal of exalting Jesus Christ and putting others before ourselves, 
we tend to forget all the self-serving petty differences that normally separate us. You know how I can tell I'm in the flesh? is when I'm driving down the road and I see some dude and go, what's that dude up to? I think he's looking to rip somebody's off. I think he's going to go get him a sawzall and cut out one of these catalytic converters. When I'm walking with the Lord, you know how I see people beside the road? I wonder if that dude knows Jesus. I wonder if I could help him out today. I wonder if that dude's hungry. He looks like he's got a ragged shirt. You know, I got a shirt I can give him. Isn't that weird how that works out? If I'm thinking about me and my flesh, I'm so judgmental it is crazy. And I put a label on somebody. No, I didn't say, Myron, you do that. I didn't say, Teresa, you do that. I didn't say, Tyler, you do that. I said, me, I'm the one. Here's what interests me. When a disaster takes place, a hurricane, a tornado, a house burns, a forest fire, and people's lives are threatened, nobody asks whether a Democrat or a Republican, nobody asks whether they're a Florida Gator or a Georgia Bulldog, nobody asks what kind of T-shirt they prefer, yellow, red, green, white, doesn't matter. They come to help out their neighbor, and they do whatever is necessary. And they provide food and they provide shelter, and they give them their vehicle to use. They do whatever's necessary to help somebody who's a complete stranger get through the crisis. Why is it when the crisis is over, we go back to how we were before? Let's up with that. How could we forget about all that stuff and do what's necessary because of the crisis, and when it's over, go back? Are we weird people or what? Maybe I shouldn't include you. I'm a weird person. I'll just keep on preaching to me, all right? I know that we can have that Christ-like attitude because I've seen it exhibited, and so have you. My first experience here in Grady County was the tornadoes of 2000 when they went through the northern part of the county, and all kinds of people lost everything. And the Red Cross came and set up shelter and an opportunity to minister to people, and they had to shut it down because people in the area were opening up their homes to allow people to stay in their households. Is that cool? That's you. That's your county. That's your reputation. That's you, South Georgia. You have a great reputation in this state and in this country, hopefully in this world. But if we can let go of our preferences, our schedules, our desires for that little bit of time, then we prove to ourselves that we can do it on a regular basis all the time. Why wait for those external reasons in crisis to draw us together? Why not do that all the time? Notice in this passage of Scripture, these are not suggestions that Paul is giving. He says, do nothing from selfishness. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. You know, Paul is writing to this church in Philippi when the Roman Empire is in control. They didn't have a vote in the Roman Empire, who they could choose, who would represent them, what laws would pass, how much taxes were, none of those things. And yet persecution came to the church and it only made them stronger because no matter what the Romans did to the church, they could not take away their choice of attitude and they didn't get selfish. They got stronger by being unselfish and helping others. In verses 5 through 11 in this passage, we have a beautiful example of humility of mind. And the example that Paul gives us is the best example that he could give. It's of Jesus Christ. What we have here is Christ's life before he came and then after he left this earth. Verse 5, he says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he illustrates Jesus' life in verses 6 through 11. Prior to his birth in verse 6, his coming to earth in verse 7 and 8, 
and his departure following the earth in verses 9 through 11. Look at Jesus' existence before he became a baby that we're going to celebrate this coming month at the manger in Bethlehem. Verse 6, who although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does it mean to be in the form of God? It means to be very God. He is co-equal. He is deity. He is co-eternal. He is co-existent. Jesus is God in all forms. Surrounded by the presence of the Father, enjoying heaven to its fullest, having angels' adoration and praise all day and night, having absolute sovereign control without any question. Jesus did not begin life in Mary's womb. That's when he became a man. But remember, he is God, and he never stopped being God. Look again at that phrase, did not regard equality with the with God a thing to be grasped. What that means is that Jesus was willing to give up heaven to let it go. He was willing to cooperate with the sovereign plan of his father, which meant that he had to acquiesce his plans, his desire to follow what the father's desire was. Remember when Jesus was in the garden and he prayed, Father, take this cup from me, take this cup from me, but nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. Even though Jesus knew that God's plan, his father's plan, would include surrendering the environment of heaven and gaining the agony of earth, why did he do it? Because of humility, because of unselfishness. And what was he coming to? Look around. Not a heavenly one among us. (laughs) And we're the cream of the crop, right? Leaving the angelic hosts of heaven, as I said, flooded with praises, he unselfishly came to gain misunderstanding, abuse, criticism, and crucifixion. What an exchange. Let's see. The glories of heaven and all that is mine or abuses, misunderstanding, which leads to crucifixion. Hmm, which will I choose? I am so glad and eternally grateful that Jesus chose to come this direction for me and for you. Look at verse 7. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Jesus willingly released his independence and his power and operated under the submission of the Father's will. He was born to Mary and lived in Nazareth. You know anything about Nazareth? Was it an affluent community? Was it well-known, had a great reputation throughout Palestine, right? Yeah, everybody want to know they're from Nazareth. I'm from Nazareth. No, you know from the scriptures it was a ridicule that everywhere they went, they gave it as a put-down. You're from where? It's kind of like when I tell people I live in Megs. I go, oh, not that part. I really live on the outskirts of town. Because <laughs> all they know is about Megs is bad news. Oh, our mayor's crazy, isn't she? She's not my mayor anymore. Yeah, but she was, wasn't she? That town's corrupt, isn't it? Yeah, it probably is. Wild. Jesus accepted the most painful and most humiliating way to die crucifixion. It's the worst kind of death. You hang there naked. You are nothing but a bloody mass. And then the insects come and they attack your body. And you're laying there until you finally suffocate on that cross. And in those days, they would usually leave the body on the cross until the buzzards came along to pick flesh off the bone. Isn't that amazing? Fortunately for Jesus, and we know the story, he was taken down and then carried away into a borrowed tomb. 
Now, before you get all hot and bothered that you've got to give up a little bit of something or you've got to sacrifice here or there, you remember again and again what Jesus sacrificed on your behalf, and you'll have no problem being a little bit unselfish and helping somebody else letting them watch their television program or letting them have the last piece of apple pie or pumpkin pie or letting them sit in the recliner at Thanksgiving when everybody else is taking a nap. You give them your best spot, right? I'm getting too close to home here, right? I need to leave this alone. Isn't it a good thing that Carrie's coming back and I'm only the guest here tonight? Yes, it is. The question we've got to ask ourselves is, what is my ministry costing me? Does it cost me anything? A humble lifestyle is going to cost you. It is not going to cost you your life, but it is going to cost you your rights. And it is going to cost you being able to speak up sometime when you're not going to be able to, because you know if you say something, it's only going to make things worse. I wish at this age in my life I would so know when to speak and when to hush, when not to say anything at all. I need the advice of Thumper's mama. If you don't have anything nice to say, then don't say anything at all. And I forget it all the time. What is it going to cost you and I to be unselfish? Is it going to be a little bit of inconvenience? Maybe. Will it cost you a few things you don't want to give up, but you'll give up anyway? Have you ever offered somebody and you've got two things, one is a new one and one is an old one, and they choose the new one, and you think, oh, man, I wanted a new one. I'm being way, way too much. Okay, I'll move on, I'll move on, I'll move on, I'll go on. Jesus didn't come to us grudgingly. He didn't come to us holding on to a bitter spirit, kicking the sand and spitting, I gave up heaven for you. What are you going to do for me? None of that kind of thing. How do I know that? Because of Hebrews 12, 2, it shares, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the Father. Who for the joy before him endured the cross? What kind of joy did Jesus see before him? You. You coming to know him and trust him. Me. Have you ever considered yourself to be joy to God just by the simple fact that you trusted his son? That's a cool thing. I, I love it. And what happens? Verse 9. Therefore, also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him, bestowed on him a name which is above every name. Jesus humbles himself to go to the cross to die in my place for my sin. He's placed in a borrowed grave. His disciples scatter all over the place. They left him wondering, what do we do now? Where do we go? Who do we follow? Jesus comes back to the grave and their surprise and he ministers to them for 40 days. And God supremely exalts him as he arrives back in heaven. There's a celebration time. The applause of heaven is there. And they give Jesus the highest name ever given. Curios, Jesus Christos, Jesus Christ, Lord. No one else deserves that title, only Jesus. Verse 10, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. All knees will ultimately bow before Jesus Christ. You realize that, right? Everybody. Some willingly, many unwillingly. In heaven, that includes the angels and those believers who have passed away and are in heaven right now along with the cherubim and the seraphim. On the earth, that's every living human being who loves to worship him. And even those who deny him and despise him will one day 
stand to their feet, and then bow before him on their knees. Because it says, all on the earth will bow. Then it says, under the earth. That refers to the devil and his demons, along with all those forces of evil. Those who are damned in hell will then kneel before Jesus Christ and declare him Lord. Look at verse 11, last verse we're going to look at. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know what the word confess means? It comes from the Greek word homo legeo. Homo we know is same, logos is word. What God says is true, we agree. God, I confess. What you say is true, I agree. And that's confessing. And so they all agree, and we all agree, that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Well, let me give you some concluding questions, as if I hadn't already given you some questions to consider. Just a few more. No digs now. I'm not trying to dig. You do realize that any time I preach to you, it includes me more than it does you, in case you were wondering about that. Uh, I need this more than you need it. You just happen to be the audience to hear what I need to share with myself. Does that make any sense? If it does, doesn't, I hope it does. Many will tell you, look, you do this thing right here, you follow this kind of advice, you will be taken advantage of. If you live for others and you don't stand up your rights, you're going to be walked all over. You don't get mad at people, you get even. And you don't just get even, you make them pay so they never forget what you did to them. Right? Something like that. I mean, that's the world's philosophy. Most movies where somebody did wrong, we're cheering, that dude needs to get it, that girl needs to get it, she's evil, she can be, man, I hope she gets what's coming to her. Mm. And yet the counsel that God honors is a willingness to demonstrate an attitude of humility. What happens when we demonstrate unselfishness is God replates this hate and this revenge and this desire to stand for our rights by a flood of peace and happiness that we can't explain. Proverbs 16, 7 says, When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Now that's a cool verse. I love that. Have you ever heard of a guy named Watchman Nee? I want to conclude with this one. Watchman Nee, you need to Google him. (laughs) That's what I was asking my adult children. Google that. How did such such happen? Why are they doing this in the World Cup? Google that. Why are they doing such and such? <laughs> they could do it so fast. Man, it's faster than me looking it up. However, Watchman Nee was a Christian in China who was arrested for being a believer and spent multiple years in prison. While he was there, he wrote many books, and uh, they've been published over and over again. Watchman Nee used to love to tell a story about a Chinese farmer who would go every morning to flood his rice fields only to find that his neighbor had drained his field of water and put it into his own. This happened day after day after day. And so the Christian farmer wondered, what should he do? How can he keep his testimony and maintain it and yet not get angry or ticked off or want to jack this other farmer's jaw? And so he came with the conclusion that he would get up even earlier in the morning. He would go and he would flood his neighbor's field first, and then he would flood his rice field with water. As a result of his action, his neighbor became a believer. And you say, such a simple thing. But to do something on selfishness has the world question, why are you doing this? What is your motivation? And they want to know, why? What is it? And it gives us the opportunity to share about Jesus. So what is it about you? 
that needs to change in order for you to be this unselfish person that Jesus speaks about? What things are you grabbing a hold of that you need to let go of to have too much of a control on you? If you don't know what that is, then you ask your family because they'll know. You ask your neighbors or your friends or your real good friends, and if you got real good friends, they will tell you the truth about yourself. They don't want to just tell you what you want to want to hear. For some people, it's a title, it's a position, um, it's a, it's a name of honor that they want to hold on to. Whatever it is, you and I as believers need to set that thing aside so that we can empty us of ourselves, so that God can use us like He's never used us before. I close with this quote from James Montgomery Boyce. He says, caring for others is at the heart of a right relationship with God. All rebellion is inevitably linked to a corresponding disregard for others. I pray every day for peace in Ukraine because of a disregard for others, of a leader who owns more land than anybody else has on the planet of the earth. Why do you want another little section of land that's rich in farming But why do you need it when you've got all this other land? One of these days you're going to pass away, Mr. Putin, and all you're going to be able to say is, yep, I got all this other land. But how many other lives were destroyed and families disrupted and the world brought into chaos because you wanted a little bit more land? The opposite end, what could happen if we were an unselfish person where we work or in our family or on the team that we play? And the impact could not just be for a few years or decades, but for eternity. Because people would come to know Christ because of our unselfishness. I hope that's the case. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege of being able to honor you on this Lord's Day. We met this morning for worship, and it was glorious. It's a joy to be with our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a challenge to us to see those who are seeking and wanting to know Jesus. And so it convicts our own heart of what kind of person are we? Are we drawing them from Christ or are we pushing them away? Lord, it's easy for us to say as individuals, well, you know, I've always been that way. We don't always want to be a certain way if it's not like you. Now, Lord, not all of us are preachers in here, but all of us have a unique talent and gift and we've been drawn to you and our lives have been forever changed. We want them to count for more than just a few years on this planet We want them to count for eternity and the lives of the people that we love and know and work with and live near. And Lord, even those who we consider to be our enemies, we want you to change their hearts. But in order for that to happen, we ask you to change our hearts and minds first. Help us to be people who are like Jesus and to be unselfish. I pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.